Hello, Gills and everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gills Talk. Today, we have an interview with Gills Club scientist, Vicki Vasquez. Interviewing Vicki was so much fun. I love her enthusiasm with her research, with scientific communication, and just her overall love of science. You will be able to hear that very well throughout her interview today. You will also be learning in this interview with Vicky about the shark species that she discovered, which is the ninja lantern shark. Now, typically we do species profiles on the sharks that our researchers are looking at, but we do a very large dive into what the ninja lantern shark is and its origins of how it got such its unique name. So without further ado, let's get into our interview with Vicky Vasquez. Welcome everyone to another episode of Gills Talk. Today we have Gills Club scientist Vicki Vasquez. So welcome and thank you for coming. Hello everybody. Yeah, I'm really excited to be part of the Gills Club podcast. I'm definitely the kind of person that will listen to a million podcasts. You know, it's, it's just great in between, you know, boat rides if you're on a boat or for me, it's a lot of driving. And I just don't think there's enough like ocean podcasts out there. I used to like search for that religiously. So I'm happy that this exists. I do agree. I don't think there really isn't a lot of ocean based or even just specific shark based podcasts out there. So yeah, that's a very good point to make. So if anyone that's listening, if they know anyone that we don't know about, like message us and then we can at least share some more ocean based podcasts. But to kick off the interview, uh, what is your research focused on and or what is your current line of work that you're doing right now? Uh, what I've been focusing on is the the term is based on the term that my a professor created from my master's program, and that is lost sharks. Um, when I first heard him use that the term, I think that really helped me focus on what my goals are. Um, I think like a lot of people, the first thing I was interested in was white sharks, and I wanted to do that research. And he had a really good point where he was saying, why does it have to be white sharks? And I was like, it doesn't have to be white sharks. I always just kind of thought, saw that as this like measure of like, if you're doing the best, you're going to work on the best. And like, that's the most famous shark. And that's what, you know, helped open the door to these lesser known species. For my master's, I was focusing on lantern sharks. And so I'm still going to be doing some, some tail end work um, on that with him. So, so part of my research right now is, is still um, looking at lantern sharks and um, their amazing group of sharks, their whole genus. And we just keep discovering new ones. So that's, that's, that's what really got me interested in that work. And then moving you know, past the, the master's research and, and, and kind of tying all those loose ends, I want to focus on the same concept, but I'm hoping that I can do this for San Francisco Bay. So looking at the lesser known species there, because again, we always think about white sharks, especially for the Bay Area. We have a hockey team and they're named the San Jose Sharks. But if you look at all the memorabilia and everything, it's all really white sharks and there are so many other sharks in that bay that are better representations and have a stronger influence on that ecosystem 
So I'd like to continue with the uh, exploring the sort of underdog sharks of the world, but we'll see. Starting a new new project or endeavor is always like really intense. What are some of those underdog sharks of San Francisco Bay? Ooh, I'm so glad you asked. One shark, and its common name is kind of terrible, but it actually got coined in, in San Francisco, and that is the soup fin shark. Um, people around the world might know them as taupe sharks or school sharks. And the reason I, I stick with that, that original name isn't because right now they are a, a major species being taken by for shark fin soup. That's not the case right now, but it's just a good reflection of this shark story. And, and, and that story is that it's always been viewed as a commodity in some way or another for fisheries. You know, at, at one point, yeah, it was looked at for soup fins, but in another time it was really, and this was what was the most devastating to the shark, was when it was looked uh, looked at for its oily livers. I want to, to see how those sharks have been doing along the California coast since the times that they were more heavily fished, um, which was, you know, back in the 40s. So again, I want to to explore these 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 lesser known species, and you know I definitely want to keep going with with the deep sea sharks as well. So that's what's uh, nice and maybe a good message for for current or future grad students, which is whatever projects you do at that time, even if you move on uh, from your from your actual graduate role and that direct connection to your university, that doesn't mean that the research has to end. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times people will, will notice that um, someone's uh, thesis manuscript will, will come out and it will be a couple years later that the actual published uh, work from those, from those manuscripts will, will come out. So, so that means that those scientists who wrapped up their gradu graduate program um, were still again, kind of like what I said before, like tying up those loose ends and making sure that those projects reached the wider audience that they were originally hoping for. So, you know, that takes follow-up work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that you are veering toward these lost sharks, alien sharks, because you know, there are over 500 species of sharks. And yes, like I do love the white shark, but you know, I also do love like these deep water sharks because we don't know like pretty much anything about them and because they are so deep you know we don't have the cap capabilities or we're starting to have the capabilities to even go down and even find them and even start learning about them and discovering them so it's always so interesting and it's I always love hearing about your work because it's things that really no one knows yet and you're helping everyone learn about it exactly that's that's what really got me um i would almost say now like addicted to to this whole concept because that 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 number 500 species is 500 and counting and so what's what's interesting is when you look at basic um marine science education or somebody just giving out the 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 facts that they used to know you will see a lot of people say there's around 450 sharks because that used to be not only true, but the the shark fact that was you know probably spread the most and and um, um, kind of stayed in a lot of different shark fact 
you know, PDFs that different groups created like on their websites. But now, like you said, it's over 500 and, and that number is still going up. And so I, I just, you know, want to be a part of that because the craziest thing, and this is the other thing that I'm really interested in is museum collections. Um, I think we vastly underestimate the importance of museum collections. A lot of new species, whether they're sharks uh, or something else, gets discovered a lot of times in a museum collection. So, you know, that's another thing that I want to keep keep exploring. And I will probably be doing that um, in parallel to, to lantern sharks because a lot of, you know, the 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 hot new next thing going on with with lost sharks is from a 10 year old 20 year old 30 year old shark jar that's been sitting somewhere and i just think that's so cool it's not what a lot of people imagine like i was you know scuba diving and then i turned this boulder and there it was this new animal i mean that happens but it's not all the time especially because for the depths that we can reach um, as a scuba diver are essentially all coastal. When it comes to deep sea sharks, that's where you have to start getting creative. And like you mentioned before, it's another reason why I'm excited with the advancement of different marine technologies, because it's just gonna make it easier and easier for us to explore these, these new deep sea shark species and in the future, it won't have to be necessarily dead stuff that have been in a museum collection. Like I said, again, I love museum collections, but that's enough for a lot of scientists. When you're trying to communicate your science and get people interested, it takes a little bit more finesse, I guess you would say, to, to get them interested in the museum collections. Um, this is why the obsession with white sharks, you almost don't have to explain it. It's like, almost visceral it's just like immediate um people just get uh, amazed by this like giant creature that to many people who aren't related to the oceans is like new for them and you know the same thing is happening in the deep sea so the more we can get video from like remote operated vehicles rovs like this it's all going to help so i think we're like really close to that like i think we're going to see that more and more in our lifetime that's, That's awesome. That's awesome. And I can see this as being almost a challenge you also face as a scientist because you are working with a species that is way more el elusive, but then you also have to compare it to these museum sam samples, which they are really incredible that you have this access to them. But I can see that as a challenge because depending on how things were preserved 30 years ago, it might not look the way it did when it was put into that sample vial thir thir 30 years ago. Am I assuming that I'm on the right path here. You are like dead on. That is exactly one of the, the biggest issues. And what it has actually done is created some taxonomic confusion because you could think, oh, this is a new species. And it's what they call it is a artifact of preservation. So a certain color or certain markings that you thought were, were the key thing to help you tell the difference between some other shark that already exist could in fact just be, um, again, the word is artifact of, pres of preservation, just something that happens when you're in a jar. And especially in the past, those jars were uh, filled with formaldehyde. 
Now they're using ethanol, which is a lot better. Um, for a scientist, you always want to use gloves. But whereas one was, you know, carcinogenic, the other one probably just really dries out your skin and feels gross. So that's a lot better. But you can just imagine from there, like, what has happened to not just the sharks, but like other animals that have been sitting in formaldehyde for, for years. It creates in itself a challenge for that kind of work, which is why I also so into museum collections, because it just kind of is like when you're watching like different TV shows that are centered around books, this, this sounds weird, but you know, like they can visualize a lot more uh, why someone is so into books, you know, they open the book and then like all this magical things come out, you know, it's like this, this window, it like draws you in. And that's what I feel about museum collections. You're just, you know, you're looking at the jar and it has this little note on it from where it came from and how long ago it was collected and who collected it. And it just gives you such this uh, amazing picture in your head. Still, even with all that great stuff, the time that it's spent in a jar is, you know, a, a, a challenge in itself. It can definitely look weird and wrinkly. So, so yeah, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. So with going with a lot of the research that you've done, I mean, you've been doing a great job being able to explain that throughout this interview so far, but do you have a favorite like discovery and aha moment? And I think I might be able to guess your answer, but I'm not going to say it out loud. I'll let you say it first, but what would be your favorite discovery or aha moment that you've had? Yeah, so that would definitely be the ninja lantern shark. Um, I got to discover a new species, and it was such an amazing thing to be a part of. And I think this would also go back to, you know, me trying to give tips for graduate students. When you go to a university just for your bachelor's of science, you, you know, a lot of times people are looking at the university itself and the general program. But when you're getting into graduate school, it becomes so much about the professor that you're working with, or maybe the kind of equipment that the lab has. Um, it's, it, it becomes so much more about the research that you wanna do. And so the benefit that I had in going to Moss Landing Marine Labs and working with uh, Dr. David Ebert for my master's was that he's, really supportive of his students. So instead of, you know, hoarding all this information and being like, I'm going to just be the first author on everything. And, and it's just gonna be me, me, me. He gives his students those those chances to kind of be the leader on a, on a project, which is insane to do during your master's, because it's not always the case that you get to be the first author. So I was just not only so appreciative of, of that, but it was just such a great opportunity. And the thing that struck me the most about the work was that I already knew that other species of lantern sharks had been discovered in museums. And, and yet, you know, there's this animal that was discovered 50 years ago, and that's the end of its story. So that's how they really start to become these lost sharks. They're not just uh, sharks that haven't been discovered yet. There's these sharks that we just kind of forget about. So I was like, I don't want that to happen this time. And uh, that's where I got my little cousins to help out. 
and with a shark that was like a jet black, much darker than other species that had been discovered or seen so far. I mean, of course, many species are, are very, very dark, but what's unique with most other lantern sharks is that their underbellies um, or different parts of their body are, are lighter. And this is awesome because it lets you really see the photophores, the parts of them that glow, the reasons that they're called lantern sharks. And, and it was super hard to see this on, on this jet black lantern shark. And so that is partly why my um, cousins came up with calling it a ninja. And then of course, with it being so dark, it was hard to find photophores. It seemed like maybe it didn't glow as brightly as other lantern sharks. And so our thinking was, you know, this must make it so much stealthier because it's stealthy to us. It's hard for us to even see the photophores. And that's a characteristic of, of that we think might be there for a lot of lantern sharks is, is trying to use their bioluminescence to be stealthy, which might sound really weird. And I'm kind of go going off, but I just have to tell you this now. When we think about the reason why something glows, like a bug, we, you know, and a lot of people, especially if you're on the East Coast, um, are going to think immediately of like fireflies. And so what we see a lot with glowing animals is like these flashes. And it's so cool, especially underwater, because there's so much communication that's probably going on. But with lantern sharks, it seems to be like this slow glow that turns on because it's hormonally influenced. And then on top of that, if it's a slow glow, you know, that would be terrible for communication. Like if you think about when you're a little kid and you try to talk to somebody with your flashlight, could you imagine if you're doing that with like a, a light bulb in a room that like takes a while to get on? That's what a lantern shark is like. And so what scientists believe is that they're using it more like an invisibility cloak. So it's turning on just enough. It's just bright enough to um, hide their silhouettes and and that's so cool because it makes you know it then makes them invisible to a lot of animals because you can't see their shadows now with that in mind and looking at the ninja lantern shark we thought it was even stealthier because with the advancement of of being able to study deep sea sharks they're seeing that there are glowing parts like along the fins there is this really cool paper that came out and they called them lightsabers thinking that like maybe they're to show um potential predators like hey stay away like look how pointy my dorsal fins are other ones seem to have these unique patterns on the side of their body so maybe they're glowing to say like hey i'm this species i only want to talk to my buddies of this species because that's who i can reproduce with and this lantern shark, the ninja lantern shark, didn't seem to have any of that. It seemed to be just about being stealthy. So jet black, stealthy, that is how we came up with ninja lantern shark. And the aha moment for me wasn't just the discovery, but how effective using science communication was. Because that moment went 
global. I'm trying to figure out like the best way to put it. Like it wouldn't, it went viral. It was, it was on the, you know, like the news and different internet stuff. But the fact that like, I would see articles from different places in the world is what was really special to me. And I felt was like such that it was, it was so much of the goal because so many people don't even know that glowing sharks exist. Mm-hmm. And here was a way to get them excited about it and to get them excited about a museum collection. Cause that's, that's where all the research happened. It was through museum collections. So um, that's just what has really inspired me and motivated me to continue um, coupling the shark research with ways to get the general public engaged with it so that they can, without having to do too much homework, just through fun, basically learn about how important these, these animals are that we normally wouldn't know about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think I, with so much now, it's really within the last few years, like we've seen in the scientific community, this jump for the communication aspect and having scientists be active on Twitter or other social media sites and being able to have their research more readily available to the public now is is so big and be able to have that access and to inspire maybe someone to maybe go into the field or just be like or just to care <laughs> in Absolutely. in general so is that something maybe you didn't maybe expect when coming into this realm or is it something that you always had in the back of your mind of like having that communication aspect with you in this um i i originally came from before i went back to graduate school um i should mention I'm, I'm older than the average graduate student. So I don't, I don't say that as like a confession, like oh, I'm over 30, <laughs> but I need more as like encouragement to, to people about when they're starting their, their careers or moving in different paths. So what I had started in was marine science education. So I had always known the importance of, of teaching, but in marine science education, a lot of that is someone comes to you it is, you know, teaching a class. It is is being part of some sort of nonprofit, um, maybe an aquarium, and and so when I started to do the actual research, what I hadn't really thought about before is trying to come up with a strategy, like a science communication strategy, to to get people to essentially come to the research to be attracted to it. And so that was something that really surprised me. And I and I and because of it, I almost keep, you know, the, you know, the the work that I do, I kind of keep it in these three different categories. So marine science education, and again, this is kind of where I feel like the group comes to you, you're talking a lot about the science or things in general. And then the research, of course, and then the science communication where you're basically putting stuff out into the, you know, to the void. You don't know if it's going to work or not. And you just kind of have to wait to see what sort of feedback that you're getting from that. And so as similar as it is, I feel like science communication is like a different ballgame. And no, I did not expect to be using that before I I went forward with stuff. What I expected to do was, you know, do my research and then, you know, be invited to a school and and do a talk about it or, or give a lecture or give a talk at a conference. Um, But what I wasn't expecting was to 
to try to find and to find ways and to continue doing that, uh, finding ways to, to attract a larger audience that may not have initially been seeking that information. Yes. Um, I mean, so, social media for one is just addictive in general, depending on how you look on it and how you like social media or not. But then for me, running the social media for for the Conservancy and for the Gills Club and for the podcast, like some days I just get sucked in because I'm like, oh, I, I can just learn more and follow this thread about X species. And then just you get like wrapped into it like a rabbit hole. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think uh, another reason why I use the word uh, addictive isn't just about trying to get people interested in what you're doing. It's just like you said, you, you start to realize how interesting other work um, is, is of, of other people. And, and also just getting that same moment for yourself where it's like, I didn't think that'd be cool at, at all. And I, that's so cool. Um, it's, <laughs> It's it's the it's the thing that makes me want to keep scrolling or looking because it's it's just so cool to to get excited about something that you would have never thought you'd be excited about. And, you know, with with social media, you don't know when that's coming necessarily. And so that's where it can get a little bit dangerous for me. And, and why, you know, science communication feels like this whole other beast that I'm still exploring. Because in marine science education, there's a start time and there's an end time. And I've worked on a lot of boats uh, doing this kind of work, which has been amazing and super cool and very, very time dependent. And so with, with social media, especially if you're getting feedback from people, you could, you know, accidentally be on it for like an hour and, and that's putting it mildly. You know, I know people talk about being on it for several hours, myself included, um, because you're trying to, you know, it's a combo of like trying to do like what you actually came onto the social media to do. And then you find uh, some other cool stuff that's going on. And then on top of that, people are responding to the things that you posted. So it is, um, and it's a world that keeps changing. So I am, I'm not on TikTok yet, but <laughs> that's definitely something I want to explore more. And, you know, one of the things that I think can be tricky with social media is hearing about something like TikTok and then being like, okay, like I want to be one of the first people on it. And, and what I realized is I think it's better to wait until something like that is, is established. So that way, you know, how you want to use it for your science communication, using that or for fun or like Snapchat. I mean, th those are the things that I think are, are a little bit more obvious in terms of being used for like fun because they're so short and things can disappear. I think Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have had a longer longevity. So people understand using those more for spreading the word on something, whether it's marine science or, you know, selling a shark toy. Yeah, I think you summed that up well. I'm not even going to con continue on with that. You really, you wrap that up really nicely. <laughs> So for <laughs> my last question for you for to round out this interview would be what advice would you give to your younger self starting out in this? I, there's so many things I'd, I'd give myself advice to. Um, 
one of the the things that I think is so misleading and is I would have warned myself and I, and I warn people now is is the idea that if you just do your best and if you just work really hard, you're going to get the returns. And and that's not true. It can be true, but that's a, a very narrow tunnel to think of that doesn't include whatever might be going on in your personal life that suddenly makes it hard for you to do your best um, or your economic background. In the United States, if you're not making a lot of money, you still have the luxury of being some somehow near the the best universities in the world in a lot of cases. And because of that, and the the idea that there's a lot of reliable internet, it just helps your ability to to connect to those worlds. And I think what's vastly underestimated is is how amazing international researchers are that are lacking some of those those key um, elements. So it's this weird balance that I would have told myself in, in, in understanding what my privilege was and understanding what my real challenges were. And, and just knowing that even, even, even with the privilege of being in the United States, those those other very real challenges, like financial challenges, are de debilitating in, in a lot of ways for students. And and what I've noticed, and and this is completely fine, but I I noticed that a lot of people around me, it's not that they're independently wealthy, but they had some sort of additional financial support, whether it came from somebody else, maybe some other work that they were doing. And so that's what I would have really given myself some advice on is, you know, don't be so proud of yourself for being able to live with a small amount of money because you don't know how long that might actually uh, be going on for. And it's not because you're not good at what you do, but it just can be so challenging sometimes to get the right jobs. And even if you get your dream job, uh, the truth is your, your dream job may not pay a lot. So um, it's it's a lot of the practical stuff that I would have given myself advice on. You know, it's not all like stars and rainbows because it sounds so cool. And people that do the kind of shark work that a lot, you know, you were doing or a lot of people you're interviewing are doing. It's just like, you know, I just hear people say all the time, like, oh, I wish I was a marine biologist or I wish I had your job. And, you know, my response a lot of times would be like, I wish I had your paycheck. So, you know, that's, that's, that sort of stuff. And it's okay to make those sacrifices, but I think it's important to, to kind of know what you're getting into. And I don't think I, I thought about that part. I just thought about like doing my homework and studying and getting the right answers on a test. And it's just so much more than that. Mm -hmm. I think that is great advice to end on. So before we do head off for the interview, where can people find you on social media so they can keep in touch or be able to learn more about any research that you're doing? Yes, thank you for asking. Um, that's another weird thing that uh, people can do to help myself or other scientists is, is just help amplify their voices. And a part of, of doing that is, is by just doing something that's totally free for you, which is 
you know, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Vicky Shark. So that's uh, V-I-C-K-Y. And then I hope you know how to spell shark. <laughs> <laughs> and then for, uh, for Twitter, it's similar, but um, I had to use at Vicky Sharky because the other one was taken. So that one I'll spell S-H-A-R-K-Y at Vicky Sharky for Twitter. You know, one of these days, very soon, I'll get on TikTok and I'll sh share that online too. But, but yeah, for the most part, if you look up something like Vicky Shark, you, you can find me on social media. So yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, you are welcome. So thank you again for coming. And I hope everyone is able to go out and follow Vicky on social media. She posts some really cool stuff along the way and be able then to keep in contact with her future research. So thank you again. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Vicky. Again, if you would like to follow her on her social media platforms to be able to follow more on what she does, you can follow her on Twitter, which is Vicky Sharkey, as well on Instagram and Facebook, which is Vicky Shark. Go ahead and give her a follow. Tell her hello and how much you enjoyed the episode this week. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.